Welcome to Long Distance Listening, a music podcast. Hello and welcome to Long Distance Listening. I'm Andrew. And I'm Nate. Welcome to part one of our two-part episode with Tyson Matzenbacher. Part one here is going to be our general interview, just a lot of general questions about Tyson's music in the past, tour, and just all the things going on in his life. And then part two is going to be our song-by-song breakdown of his newest album, Someday I'll Make It All Up To You. So make sure that you check out both of those episodes. So Nate, you ready to get into our interview with Tyson Matzenbacher? Yes, sir. Hey, y'all. Before we get into the episode, we just want to take a second and recommend some great music. So the new Nap Eyes album, Snapshot of a Beginner, is out on March 27th, which is most likely already happened by this point in time. So that means a full dang album is out that you got to go get, get listening to, okay? So after you finish the podcast, go check out Nap Eyes' new album. Give them some love. Here's a quick clip from their funny single, very funny, love the title, Mark Zuckerberg. So Tyson Matzenbacher released his first full-length album, Letters to Lost Loves, in 2016. And early in 2020, Tyson Matzenbacher released his sophomore record, Someday I'll Make It All Up to You, on February 14th. So Tyson, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Someday I'll Make It All Up to You, it's been on constant rotation for both of us, and we're so honored to have you. Before we get into serious questions about your music career and the record, we have a segment called How Blank Are You? So today it's called How Tyson Matzenbacher Are You? And basically, you'll answer some either-or questions, and this is honestly just an opportunity for fans to learn more about who you are so they can become more like you and attempt to satisfy their idolatrous hearts. Sounds good? Perfect. All right, sweet. So, uh, Andrew, you can lead us off. All right. So the first question for you, Tyson, is coffee or tea? Oh, definitely coffee. Marvel or DC? Oh, I got to go Marvel on that one. Twin Peaks or Stranger Things? I think Twin Peaks. Heck yeah. Baseball parks or national parks? Oh, man. I think national parks on that one. I do love baseball, though. Too hot or too cold? That one's tough because I grew up in the cold and I hate being cold. But I think if you're too cold, it's, I think it's a little bit easier to get warm than if you're too hot to cool off. So I think too cold. So a little bit of background right now is uh, we ran out of heating oil at my house. So it is right oh. now in the 50s in the house, which is oh my not great. So um, yeah. So I got all the layers on. And then I was telling Nate that, and Nate goes, well, it's freaking hot in here. <laughs> so. I, 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 li- I live at a dorm, and the heat is not regulated well at all. And so it's always running at, like, 
a, a low 80, 81. And I mean, I'm over, I'm being over dramatic. It's probably like mid seventies, but, uh, so yeah, that question was not writ- written with understanding our current situations. Okay. My next question. I find this weirdly humorous, though it, it probably shouldn't be. Running or walking? Oh, man. That's a, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm historically a big advocate of walking. But uh, my dad was, my, both my parents were marathon runners, and they, so I, I don't know. I think, I would say if you're in shape for running, like if you've been running, then it's the best thing in the world. But otherwise... For me, that's like very short sections of time in my <laughs> life where I, where it feels good to go running. <laughs> so probably walking, I think. So takeout or dine-in, and this is specifically, basically, if we weren't in this full-on quarantine where you have to take out, right. what would you do, takeout or dine-in? I'm a big fan of dining of dining in. It's, I, I actually love doing it alone. I like mm. going out to eat by myself because like you can like sit down so much happens in a restaurant you know like there's so much of the world happens in restaurants so i would pick that one are you a big people watcher yeah it's a weird phrase but yeah i think it's it's like kind of a discipline actually because there's like kind of two types of people watching there's the type where you're like being creepy and you're trying to (laughs) like hear about somebody's somebody's like uh, breakup or whatever which is that type the creepy people watching is the best in new york because everyone's lives happen outside. So you can like really catch a pretty broad swath of humanity out there. But the kind that I like is when you're, I think when you try to pick up on the subtleties of like kind of people's situations and that really, I think that really helps to give, especially like as a songwriter, starting to like be really sensitive to what people want and what they need and what they're afraid of and stuff. That's a really good indicator of people at large. I really like doing that, but it's a skill. It's hard to, it's hard to do it. So it takes a lot of practice. Reading or writing? Oh, man. I think reading is more fun and writing is more rewarding. So probably depends on the time. If, if, if writing is going well, then writing. But that's not all the time at all. In the studio or on tour? Ooh. People always talk about like loving being in the studio. I would say it's actually the exact same thing as reading and writing. Because if you're in the studio, that, that'd be like writing. Like you're in there and... Like when something magic happens, there's nothing better than that. But it's it's a grind a lot of the time, and like especially when you're like making a record or something, you have all these financial like all these these money things are happening all the time, and it's really hard to like at all like stop and enjoy it. It's just like, oh, this is costing me a lot of money, and all these people's time, and you're trying to you know that like you know the next two years of your life are hinging off of the decisions that you're making. So it's like it's not super fun all the time but it's awesome when it works but being on tour is just fun like being on tour is just like you out there and you play your songs and people people come up to you and tell you that they like them and that they you know like something important in their life happened regarding the songs and it's like that's just fun but it's not as rewarding as making something great in the studio so this is a tough one maybe maybe not switchfoot or colony house <laughs> man oh well, i love everyone in that party except dearly <laughs> except for scotty no just kidding yeah everybody hates Scotty. <laughs> i love that he's so, no i um i think that it's the fun thing about them is that just like you know switchfoot is just they're just like they're just kind of legends like they've been doing it for so long 
and they've been they found a way to continue to be relevant and be successful so they're and obviously and just like you know john is incredibly inspiring to me but i think like being going out with colony house are like you know it's like it does feel a little like they feel like peers to me you know like they feel like people that are we're both still kind of cutting our teeth and figuring out what our careers and lives are going to look like so it, it does feel a little bit more it's a little bit more relatable going out with colony house just like you know guys that are in a band starting that started now and they don't have platinum records and grammy awards and stuff so not yet yet yeah <laughs> all right so we explained this really quick before but i am from philly nate is from boston and so we're gonna have you pick boston or philly oh man oh that's a hard one i think i think i gotta pick oh i think i gotta pick philly damn it come on <laughs> I love Boston. (laughs) Tyson, I have to say this to everybody we record with because it's consistently true. Nobody's picked Boston yet. This is like... Really? Yeah, we're almost at like 10 interviews or something and nobody's picked Boston. And so I'm waiting on that someone... And you're just not it, and I'm disappointed. Where are the people from that you interview? Are they from all over the place? Ah, yeah. I think Caleb from Colony House almost picked Boston. I think that was about the closest you were going to get. Yeah, but we had people from Indiana, from... We had uh, Zach from Citizens. We had some people from New York, but nobody picked Boston. Ah, man. Well, I wish I had. No, it's okay. It's okay. No, the, the, the truth came out, and you know what? I'm glad you spoke what was true to your heart. It will, I'll be all the more rewarded when it actually happens for real. Somebody will. You know, you're going to find your somebody. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, Tyson, for playing hi- How Tyson Motzenbacher Are You? And uh, that thank you is half-hearted on my end. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Boston and Philly, you were partway through a tour with Colony House that Nate and I were both looking to coming to Boston and Philly when the state of emergency because of the COVID-19 virus caused you guys to postpone the rest of the tour. So first off, how was the start of tour? And then second, how bummed were you when you had to postpone the rest of the dates? And then third, what do you feel like the challenges will be picking up the tour later on? Those are all good questions. I think tour started like amazingly. It couldn't have started better. Just, yeah, the Colony House guys like are really dear friends and the shows were just kind of all selling out. And, you know, a lot of like, you know, there's a lot, I felt like there was a lot of energy coming off of their new record and my new record and yeah it was just like kind of the best thing you could ask for especially as a support on a support tour and then yeah we just like we kind of just wore you know the funny thing is that like it's it's an experience that i'll never forget because you know now i'm home and i'm here and i'm sort of watching it happen like from the place that i'm familiar with so i like know that these restaurants are normally open or whatever now they're not and that's kind of the only thing that feels different but being being out on the road like being in America while you watch it come, like kind of like, like while you watch it, like become a cloud and then start raining. That's kind of how it felt. I was like, is that a cloud? And I was like, ah, maybe we're probably fine. And then I was like, oh, that's getting really close. And I was like, ah, it's probably fine. But yeah, just like that day when basically we were just running everything as normal. And we're like, this is fine. It was kind of like, this seems like a flu type thing. And, It'll probably go, it'll probably pass. And then, and I think we were all just, was all wishful thinking. But then we got to 
Minneapolis. So we were the okay. day before we got an email that said that the DC show canceled, and we were like, okay, bummer, we'll reschedule it. So you know, we put out a thing like, hey, DC's canceled, and then literally the next day, I, we both got calls from our booking agents, and they were like losing their minds. <laughs> like the, I got a phone call from uh, you know my booking agent. He was like, dude, everybody, like the, the two biggest promoters in the country are canceling all shows. Anything over, like, I think it was a small club, like over 100 cap, 250 cap or something. And and I remember just, like, they sent me, I saw this thing that was, like, yeah, the touring industry is about to lose, like, $1.2 billion with one email. And that was just crazy. That felt like just the sky was falling down. And then, you know, everybody's making phone calls. And the crazy thing is that I think, like, watching that happen out in America, you know, like, we're playing the show and people have masks on. And then across the street, there's, like, a St. Patty's bar with people all like college kids all drinking because they're off school and it feels like a snow day. And then, you know, and, and then we have like the thing that was crazy too, is that we have all these crew friends. So guys that are tour managers and merchandise guys and lighting directors and stuff. And those guys are just out of work indefinitely. You know, they're just out of work, nothing forever, or at least as long as the touring is, is canceled. And so I'm just like, they just felt like the apocalypse. And, you know, and for me and the other guys being like, well, we had this tour booked. We put a lot of money into it. You know, we put a lot of time and a lot of energy and thought. And it's supposed to be the kind of the big thing to launch our new records. And that's just over. And so it, it was really devastating and really hard. And I mean, it's still it's still kind of being realized to me. I still don't really, <laughs> you know, even yesterday I was joking to say like, like, man, I like I put this record out on Valentine's Day and then immediately this thing happened. It's like trying to, you know, we had like this publicity company that was trying to like get like articles for us and try to get interviews and different things like that. And it's just like, Oh man, that just feels so silly to try to talk about this thing in the, you know, with this, try to talk about this record I made with the global conversation. It's just like, and that's just one tiny little, tiny little corner of the world. You know, I know that like, you know, my girlfriend's a server at a restaurant. She got laid off. And it's just like, that's, a ton of people, bartenders and service industry people. And so I think that when it happened to us, everybody was like, oh, this is fine. We just stay home for a while. And I was like, no, dude, like this is a huge deal just because I saw it like completely crumple my industry in one day. So yeah, man, it was, it was a pretty, pretty sober awakening. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've been mentioning it. That's kind of the, the next question I wanted to get to because of postponing this tour and because of postponing a lot of people's tours, that's put a huge strain on artists and touring acts who rely on public gatherings for a lot of their income. So can you share with our listeners the best way to support you and other artists during this time? Yeah, that's a really thoughtful question. Yeah, I mean, even like we were talking about that today, it's like, you know, everybody's moving their tours to the fall right now. So it's like, I just heard back that somebody had a 30th hold at a venue in October. That means there's 30 bands in front of them that want that date. So it's just like, yeah, looking ahead to be like, okay, well, yeah, maybe we can reschedule our tours, but literally everyone is rescheduling our tours. So you can't have everybody can't go on tour at once, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that just in general, generally speaking, I think it's just time to be generous. I, w- I, I consider that for myself as well, because there's going to be a lot of people that are, I think just looking, the, the best way I can say it is it feels way more like, like the spirit of a thing than like the actual brass tacks of how do you do it. I mean, there's a lot of ways to, I think generally speaking, if, if someone that you like what they make, you know, if they, if they reach out in a way for like, for help in any way, you know, say like, Hey, I have tour merch is on, like I put tour merch on sale three days ago and we almost sold out of it. It was just like 
incredible to watch people just go out of their way to buy stuff online like they never have before, just because it was like me saying, look, here's a way that you can do it. So I think that just like watching the people who make things that you love and seeing how they propose ways for you to support them and just jumping on board that is really helpful. Like we've been talking about trying to do is, you know, some live streaming concert type stuff or maybe like a Patreon thing where there's like kind of behind the scenes stuff or like different things like that. And just saying like, man, if somebody, and I know everyone does that, or at least I think people want to do that. You know, it's like, I feel like in my life, there's like, you know, 25 things that I really love uh, that are kind of like independently created. And like anytime that they would say like, Hey, can you give me two bucks a month or whatever? I'd be like, of course I can. So just like looking at ways to, to support the things that you love actively is just a good way to do it. Yeah, and I'll even just add a plug for your own music just for every listener out there. Please check out Tyson's website and the store there. And he's got an awesome yellow vinyl that you can get. The shirts and sweatshirts are some of the coolest out there. So just like support Tyson, buy his stuff, maybe get him to the point that before tour starts again, he's got to order a bunch of new stuff because he ran out. So let's just support Tyson. And, and, and I think that what you're saying about being generous is a really, really good take during this time. Yeah. It feels really antithetical. You know, like when times get hard, it's like your immediate reaction is to like lock up in every way. And I think what I've found is that when times get hard, it's really important to seize your consumption, especially like the consumption of things that are not, you know, super important to your daily life. And then to actually like exceed your normal generosity. It's like, it's totally counterintuitive, but yeah, try and just try to give, give more when things are hard and just take less. I think it's good for, good for everybody. That's a general, generally a good rule for life, but I think especially when things feel scary. So transitioning a little bit from that conversation, so you released Letters to Lost Loves in 2016 after the death of your mom, and you've talked many times about your walk from San Diego to San Francisco and how the album emerged from those experiences and others during that time in your life as you reflected on her life and death. You also released two EPs in 2017, and so I'm wondering, in what ways have you grown as a songwriter, artist, and even as a person since all of these releases that led to Someday I'll Make It All Up to You? Yeah, man. So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, like up in Washington State. I think that like a lot of my upbringing and kind of like my childhood was really based around words. You know, I, my parents would move every couple of years. And so we would like, and my dad was a teacher, so we would always move in the summer. So like, you know, we would move in June and then I would have June, July, and August without knowing anyone in the new place that we moved to. And so I just like, you know, I would just go to the library and I would check out 25 books at a time and I would just crank through those things. And I think that like my writing has always, my songwriting has always been pretty lenient upon the turn of phrase. I think that like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of examples of that, especially on, you know, on the first record and on the EPs where it's like, I'm kind of setting the music is way more of the, of like a, the music is there like kind of solely to support the words. It's why like my vocals are always mixed dry and pretty forward because that's always kind of been the point with like the, the words. And I still love, love writing, but I think on this record, I was like, I kind of got to this place where I was like, man, I want to write something that is where the music is its own language. Like the way that things are played, the way that things are produced the way that, you know, the things sound is actually like its own form of communicating language or emotion or whatever. And so that's what we really leaned into on this record was I still felt like there were, you know, there's, I, I still write how I always have, and I probably will, always will write that way. 
Um, but I wanted to kind of like, I wanted to like let the words, I kind of wanted to give them a break a little bit, like let them kind of exist in their own sphere and then have the music be doing something different. And that was basically like Tyler Chester, who produced this record, is like, he was a personal hero of mine and a really dear friend. And he just like pulled together this cast of musicians from LA that are completely out of my pay grade. And we worked on the songs for two weeks and then he just threw me in the studio and he was like, go, you know? And so we, we basically, we almost, you know, we did most of that record of the new record of Someday I'll Make All of You. We did it in like two and a half days at this studio when pretty much everything's live, including like the lead guitar parts and the vocals. And, and it's all like, everything is bleeding into one another. You know, the acoustic guitar is bleed, bled into the vocals. So you can't tune the vocals and the drums are bled in with the bass and the piano. And so you can't, change you can't really edit the drums so it's just like it is what it is you have to let it be exactly what it was which was um incredibly scary and super challenging and i'm i think it was yeah it was it was what i needed to do in this time i guess so in an interview i read you talked about how you really head into writing a song knowing how it's going to turn out and maybe i'm kind of taking that out of context but you kind of discover its structure and content along the way and then revise it until you're content before i continue is that somewhat accurate yeah definitely and so that process of writing songs seems to be a real inefficient way to write a cohesive album. For instance, I read you wrote over a hundred songs that could have potentially been on this past record. Again, is that true as well? Probably uh, somewhere in there. Yeah. At least a ton of songs. And yet I feel like this album is extremely cohesive and conceptual. With your specific songwriting style, how did all those individual songs come together? That's a great question. Yeah, I think, like, the best way that I can describe the way that I think about songs is, so, for instance, like, today, my a friend of mine, who I live with, so we're we're uh, quarantined together, so just for just for the record. He's a really great songwriter, and we just sat down and we started writing a song. Before I can get anywhere in a song, there has to be something visual for me. There has to be a location. Like, it has to feel like a, like a movie set. Like, I have to know what the tone of the place is in my mind. And I, like, you know, I could tell you like every single song I've ever written, there's like a kind of a picture in my mind of what, where that song happens. And so this, this one today was like, we were, you know, we were writing about driving when we got the tour canceled and we drive, we drove from Oklahoma city back to San Diego in one night. And, you know, like we were driving through Texas and it was all like that kind of crazy Texas blue. So a lot of it has to do with even like colors. So this record I knew was like, this record I knew was, supposed to be kind of like a warm colored record if that makes sense it was like that's why the album art is like yellow and orange which are like colors i would never use and are super different from everything that i've ever done it's like everything i've done before has been particularly muted and pastels or not pastels but like you know kind of like out like northwest like forest colors and then now it was just like bright like crazy bright pop colors and i think part of that was just like when i when i was looking through those songs and i knew like okay, these five could go in the same movie. Like, the scenes are the same, <laughs> like, the, if that makes sense. Like, one of them isn't, it's not like, like, I'm looking through it, and this song is a Quentin Tarantino song, and this song is a Wes Anderson song, and those wouldn't go on the same record. Or even, like, this one is, this song feels green to me, and this song feels burnt orange. Like, I, or, like, you know, kind of like a, a neon or a lime green or something. It's, this is a really super hippie, out there way to explain it to you but i feel like and i i don't know if other songwriters are this way too but the way that i kind of categorize songs that i've written are with these sort of like these sort of visual scenes with characters and then the kind of colors 
And so when I had all these songs, it was pretty easy to say like, you know, these, these songs are all the same color. <laughs> so they would go together. And also some of them were just like the ones that were felt the most important to me, like the ones that were really what I wanted to say. But yeah, that's, it's a good question. And it's, because when we did Letters to Lost Loves, that was just like, I basically I wrote 13 songs and we put 10 on the record. And then we released the other two and then we put the 13th on the EP. So it was like, <laughs> every song for that was kind of exactly what it was. And that was because it came from a very specific time in my life. And now it's, you know, things are different. So. Well, we're waiting on the other 90 songs. No, I'm just playing. Yeah, so... I can just release those from here on out. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. My next question, which I won't ask, I was going to bring up, the first two lines of the album are took the train from Brooklyn, New York smiling like a monster in the caves. And I was just recognizing how locational you are. Santa Ana, Charlottesville, Rancho Santa Fe, Spokane, like almost in every song you have a location. And I was going to ask why you did that, but you answered that. Well, it's, it's actually really, it's something that I try not to do as much. Like I, I mean, I have so many location names in my songs. Like it's every record, pretty much every song will have one. And it's because that's because I'm, it's easy for me to think about once I get that, once I'm on a tear with a song, I know where it is. And so the, yeah. the name kind of will come up or at least like, you know, like Hemingway said, always talk about the weather. It's like that yeah. type of thing. Like I always want to, like the best way that I can try to let listeners into the thing that I see is to start to talk about locations or, you know, visual like seasons, for instance, like I talk about seasons a lot. These are like, it's because that's, painting a location and that's like kind of how i write songs man you and i are vibing right now so my next question a lot of the songs on this album seem to deal with nostalgia living in california right now i'm assuming the weather is less stereotypically seasonal than where you grew up in washington on this record you have autumn love you have the last summer and my question is which you're starting i think to get into potentially do you find yourself nostalgic with the seasons and how does that play into living in the relatively even climate of California where you're not really able to live through those similar weather situations like you would if you were back home? Yeah, you're like nailing it. That's exactly what it is. It's like when I grew up in the Northwest, you know, like there, it's the same where you guys live, but like there's four seasons, things are marked. Time is marked by these subtle changes, right? So like, you know, I knew that when, like, one, like where I lived in this little town out east, it was like when you smelt the, like, the wheat start to come up out of the ground, it was like a specific smell. That meant that summer was coming. And then when you, mm. when they started burning the fields, that meant that fall was coming. So it was like all of these, like, you kind of are bathing in this, in change, in visceral change. Like, you can feel your life passing by you, you know, because, like, the, then the snow comes and then the snow turns black. And then the snow melts and then the flowers come up and that you can smell all of those things. And you can see all those things. And you can feel all those things. And, you know, like even from things like, uh, you know, the trucks will salt the roads and now the road smells like salt. It's like these things that you can smell and see and taste and feel and like on your skin, you can feel yourself getting older. You can like feel change happening. You can feel like the river of time slipping below you. And in California, like I just, I had this moment where my first fall here was really strange and then I didn't notice it. And then like 10 years went by and I was just like, I was like, whoa, like in, in a lot of ways I feel like, you know, it's, it's odd because I moved here 10 years ago and it's this really, it's this crazy feeling of being like, what happened? Like there hasn't been a winter in 10 years and everything has changed. 
so I think like a lot of it is and that that's, that was a way for me to begin to like try to cope with adulthood. It's actually like it's exactly how adulthood happens to people, which is the, like you're a kid and you have summer vacation and then you get a job and you stop having and then you just have the same job until you quit that job. And it's like nothing changes and everything changes so quickly. And so like having that happen on the backdrop of being in California where the seasons don't change, that was me saying like, oh, like I guess being like adulthood is sort of like living in California a little bit where everything's changing and nothing is changing all at once. And that was pretty severe. Like I started to panic about how much time had passed, you know, like when six years, seven years went by, eight years went by. And I was like, where have I been? Like, where have I been for the last eight years? Because I remember single days in summer in my college summers better than I remember the last four years. I was like, how did that happen? How did that happen? Like, where is my life going? And I think that it's just like the nature of not having everything change in a way that people are announcing to you all the time, which is like what growing up is. So, yeah, that's, that's a great question. And that's a ton of what this record is about. It's just being like, where, whoa, what? Like, how did, where, how did we get here? Like, where, where were we? I'm going to give Andrew a transition into his question just because I think it's very like almost like liturgical the seasons and uh, Andrew's question kind of transitions with that. Yeah. So religion and faith is scattered throughout your songs. In some songs, the references are more obvious than others. Has your songwriting opened up conversations about faith with fans? And if so, what have you taken away from those conversations? I mean, I've always, you know, faith has always been a really big part of my life. And it's always been a big part of my writing and my records. And I think that like the thing about it, that's hard for people I have, a, I have a lot, I would say that I have a lot of, like, a, a good core of my fans are people that are pretty classically evangelical Christian or Catholic, but the music that has been sold to that demographic is like, I mean, you know, it's like Christian music. It's mainly, and nowadays, it's pretty much just all worship music. It's what you listen to, and it's like what you sing in church. And in my mind, that has nothing to do, like, that music has as much to do with faith as anything and nothing does you know it's like to me it's it's way more of a cultural it's like a it's a cultural like uniform it's like this is the this is how this type of point of sale sounds um you know if we can like rope this demographic into a certain type of music and it's probably the thing that they're most likely to like but like the kind of music that i make is coming from a christian perspective but it's pretty antagonistic it's talking about a lot of the ways that i think that culturally christianity is failing people and ways that it's in ways that there's a lot of discrepancies in logic there and ways that people are using it to suit themselves and that's a really bad thing to sell to that demographic it's like the point of like the way that i've talked about it before is that like and this has helped me to think about it this way but basically like i think that people view like the world as scary and dangerous and unknown and they view God to be safe. And so they kind of like hedge themselves into the idea of God. Um, and they kind of like design their own idea of God to make it more comforting because it feels like something that they can know. But in reality, like what I'm trying to say to people is that like everything's fine and God is scary. Like <laughs> like the the idea of like an enormous all-knowing, uh, you know, creator deity that, you can talk to and that like cares about your little league game or whatever. That's insane. And so scary and so scary. Like the idea that that thing, like that thing up there knows you 
that's terrifying and like not safe, <laughs> especially like with the experiences that I've had as a Christian or like, God is not something that you use as an appliance, but yet like all of us pretty much find our way through lives more or less, you know, more or less unscathed. Uh, you know, I mean, all of us have trauma and all of us are, have tragedy and all of us have all of those things, but we, you know, you make it through like to, to say that, like, I think that people that encounter my music, especially because a lot of them find it through the avenues of faith, they end up getting really freaked out by it. Yeah, people like are really worried about my salvation a lot, for instance. Like, they'll come <laughs> pray for me and stuff. And a lot of times they'll, like, pray at me, like, really aggressively pray at me, like, in a way that feels like they're trying to exercise something out of me. And that's, like, always really shocking. And Yeah, this is actually, the whole interview's actually just been a ruse. This is kind of an intervention, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. We're just trying to, like, juice you up right now, make you trust us, and then we're just going to dive in headfirst and pray the devil out of you. Yeah. Nate's got his Turner Burn sermon all set, so <laughs> I think we're good. It would literally not be even the 10th time, so you guys are good. <laughs> I feel like that's maybe the yeah. craziest fact that I've learned this whole interview is how often people are, <laughs> are like calling you out on that. That's kind of weird. If if you're listening to this, just please stop. Like on behalf of Tyson, just just stop that. We want you to pray, but just for those people who are praying. <laughs> totally. <laughs> when I was on tour with Switchfoot, this woman came up to me after one of the shows and she was like, I forget exactly how she said it. And she was like, I can tell like there's some hope for you still in there. And I was like, oh I was like okay, like I, I appreciate that. You know, I know because the thing is that I ultimately like these people care. Like they, that's the thing about it. That's so hard is that they do care. And it's like, they just don't know how to voice that. I made like, I think that I made them afraid and that they, you know, that they care about me. And, and she was like, do you ever, she's like, uh, do you know, like you ever talk to John from Switchfoot? And I was like, yeah, all the time. And she was like, you should, you should ask him to like mentor you because maybe he could like have a good implication into like your salvation or whatever. Like maybe he can save you. And I, I didn't say this to her, but I wanted to be like, these are like the type of things that John and I stay up late talking about. Like, this is not a, he's not my pastor, you know, <laughs> like we're both kind of asking these hard questions and maybe the way that I said it struck a nerve a little bit differently than well, how he does it. But Well, and I think one thing with you is, you very rarely give resolution, which I think people don't like. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So what do you hope people experience listening to this record? Oh, that's that's great. I guess like kind of my, my goal is that I want like I want people that are too comfortable to be uncomfortable. And I want people that are afraid to be to be like comforted. I feel like there's a mm. sweet spot right in the middle that's like you know, like the first song is me about me being like, you know, well, I guess we'll go into that a little bit later, but it's like me talking about like this thing, which is me being afraid of the world. I'm feeling like there's, I have no place in it. And that's not true. Like that's a lie. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So like, you know, it, it's, it starts off with me saying like, look, we're, we're okay. Like, or hopefully that's the message of that song. It's like, I'm, I'm scared too. And it's, and it's okay. And then later on, there's a song about, you know, like, about basically church music and how I think people use it like drugs. And it's like saying like, Hey, if, if this is your thing, if this is how you cope with the world, you need to like find a better way to do it. Cause like, you know, I think, I mean, like, so anyway, trying to, I think there's just that spot in the middle where people that are scared can be, can feel safer and people that are a little too secure. It shakes them out of their cage a little bit. And that's, that's what I hope. 
All right. That was our interview with Tyson Matzenbacher. That was excellent. There is so much more to come in part two where we talk about each song on the newest album. Someday I'll make it all up to you. So make sure that you check out part two when that is released. And thank you so much for checking out this episode. Make sure you check out all of our other episodes and see if there's anything else that you might like on our channel. Make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss when we release part two as well and give it a like and and rate it and help us out that way thank you so much and have a great day Did you know that Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook? Did you know that? Uh, I thought he just got famous through having a Facebook. You know what? I should have done more research. You're probably right. I watched The Social Network, but I don't remember it well. I just remember Spider-Man was suing Lex Luthor, and there was this weird... It was just weird. Dude, I can't remember the last time my face saw a book. And that's sad because I'm a teacher and a grad student. (laughs) (laughs) It happens, man. It happens. Shit happens. Make a poster.